what I learned with Quicken is I learned how to do bookkeeping, you know, and I, I say you have to do, you have to run your, per, your life like a business. You run the business of you. And when you're tracking your finances, you're just doing the bookkeeping for the business of you. Now, when you own a business, it's completely expected that you would do bookkeeping because what business doesn't do bookkeeping? How would you know if the business is doing well? Yeah, how are you going to apply for a loan? How are you going to give them the, the financials? How are you going to do anything if you don't do bookkeeping? Well, that's all true for your personal life too. What's good, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning into episode 55 of Highly Invested, where we invest in ourselves, talk about personal growth, and we ask entrepreneurs and those practicing the financial independence retire early movement about the best investments they've made in themselves that help get them to where they are today. All right. Today on the show, we're speaking with the founder of Play Louder, an educational blog that helps individuals and business owners navigate their money and build the foundations for a brighter financial future. So before semi-retiring and focusing on giving back, Joe spent 19 years in LA and started his own post-production company, which he grew to 30 plus employees with over 5 million in annual revenue while producing two critically acclaimed documentaries and an Emmy award-winning HBO series. All of this he managed to accomplish after clearing out $70,000 in student loans by the age of 30. So we're going to find out how he did it and more about his story. So on the show today, I'd like to welcome Joe DeSanto. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing great, Jordan. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I'm excited to learn more about media because I think this is the avenue that I want to go down. Oh, right on. Well, I know a little bit about it. <laughs> You're the right person to ask. Now, just on the conversation we were having before, what is the difference technically between production and post-production? Well, pr production is the shooting, quote-unquote, of the material. I and mean, if you're making a movie or a commercial or TV show, you used to shoot it on film. Now it's all digital. But you go out with a crew and cameras and you capture all of the material that is going to make up your story. And then that media, which now just ends up on a hard drive at the end of the day or the week or whatever, uh, it goes over to the post-production company and that is the place uh, that you know does all the services after production or post-production and it oh, you know okay. people there's a little bit of variation on the terms but post-production on the whole can include uh, primarily editorial you know we call it creative editorial because it's the process where you edit the footage you shot together and it's you know there is a roadmap, but it is a creative process. Right. And then from there, you go into audio work. Well, along the way, you're also doing audio editing. And then from there, you kind of go into video and audio finishing, which would include visual effects work. We call it, you know, I guess you would say on, on the whole video mastering. It includes color correction, visual effects, uh, graphics, whatever. And the same for audio, uh, audio finishing. And then... There, there are other components like color correction and visual effects work or graphic design and animation. And all those things sort of come together in post kind of right after the editorial process. So the editorial process is like you create the piece uh, and then you have to go master it and make everything the finished product. Uh, so okay. all of that and, and together is post-production. Thanks for clarifying. It's like a lot of layers, like an onion there kind of thing. It can, I imagine many levels it can go into depending on what someone wants done to the, to the production afterwards. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can be pretty insane. If you go watch a big feature these days, I mean, so many features are largely reliant on visual effects, even though you, you might not even be noticing that they're visual effects. But watch the credits of a movie these days. I mean, they have to do them seven columns wide, you know, and like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. The, the process, particularly for features that are long. I mean, they, you'll, they'll be in post-production for a year or two. Makes sense. Well, I, I remember too, I think I was reading when Sonic, like they're making that new Sonic, the hedgehog movie. And I believe that the people, the studio was so disappointed with the first, uh, effort that came out that they sent it all right back into post-production but wow i didn't hear that but that does happen you know you're putting a, it, it is a big investment and uh if you focus usually what happens is they get all the f films get focus group tested 
throughout the process, uh, even in the creative editorial process, uh, to see how it's resonating. And if, if you get a bad report, they're like, well, I don't know if we want to go you know, spend $100 million in marketing uh, knowing that we don't have yeah. a great movie in our hands, so maybe we should go back. What's well, incredible, I imagine what is kind of user or what, what is done with effects that people wouldn't realize. And, you know, it's, it's like using these the cell phones or computers. Most people that are using them don't actually know what's going on behind the scenes or underneath, right, to make it. So mm-hmm. quite cool. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Awesome. So anyways, yeah, enough about that. Let's, let's, let's get into your story, Joe. So yeah, you're, you seem like quite a versatile entrepreneur and you've, you've learned all of this throughout the way. So I'm uh, just curious, do you, do you identify more as a businessman or like a creative? Uh, I guess at this point I would identify more as the, the businessman, the business side of things. Uh, nice. A creative director that I worked with for a long time actually described me this way. Uh, he, he saw me as the businessman or kind of quote unquote producer side, but he, he said I was a creative soul. <laughs> and I think that's about right. Like I, I can't compete like from an artistic design point of view uh you know i have some talents there but i can't really compete with the high level talent that's in los angeles or new york or something like that i mean mm-hmm. there are people out there that, that are just basically bottomless pits of amazing ideas that's right. not me but you know i definitely have a creative bone somewhere in my body but i i learned along the way somewhere that my talents were more at the highest level on the business side uh, which includes creative marketing for your business, sales, communication, you know, a lot of creative things uh, still, but not like the actual design, you know, and or directing or filmmaking, you know, aspect of things. Right. So you're probably good at maybe putting the systems together that are required for business to function. Oh, absolutely. I mean, both both on a business sense, like business productivity and business operational stuff. I'm also pretty technical. I mean, I primarily designed a lot of the whole computer network and infrastructure and the systems we worked on at our company. Sounds impressive. Um, yeah. <laughs> I also designed, oversaw and designed our website. It would be the, the creative curator of that and, and all the marketing, uh, creative marketing materials for the company. I would oversee that stuff. So, Good. Uh, yeah, you know, I like to do a little bit of everything. Um, it's just, it's more fun that way. Yeah. But it, but also, you know, now now I focus on like financial management, lar- you know, largely because we wanted to make a change, and I can do that work from afar from anywhere. So yeah, that's true. And with with just the pace of change, I think it's important to be able to slight like to reinvent yourself every so often, and not be afraid to try and like to try to step into a new avenue and learn some new skills that way. I agree. I mean, especially for young people today, you're, you're going to have a lot more jobs in your life than, you know, your parents did, meaning me even, and certainly <laughs> more than your grandparents. And you will have to reinvent yourself. One of the documentaries we made, Transcendent Man, is about the life and ideas of this fellow Ray Kurzweil. And it's all about, about the singularity, which is the idea that in the next 30 to 40 years, uh, we'll transcend our biology through the convergence of nanotech and biotech and artificial intelligence and live as long as we want. And I don't think a lot of people can grasp that, but like, I, I, I understand it coming in at least 20 years kind of thing. What about? Yeah, it's a, it's a heavy concept. I mean, <laughs> it affects uh, your life in like the most profound and fundamental ways. Yeah, so true. But Pointedly, what's going to happen at some point is we'll we'll merge with, with our machines. Like you know, think about your cell phone. Like you now you you don't even feel comfortable when it's not in your pocket. You you feel like shoot, I'm missing something here. What if what if you know I, I you know life things could fall apart today. I don't have my phone on me. Yeah, and we are uh, Androids well, without even realizing it. Yeah, eventually we'll just put that phone in our head because it's like why do we have to keep carrying this around? It's going to be so small. It'll just be a little chip in your head, and then you'll just be permanent. You'll be a cyborg. You know, yeah. and like. You'll be able to do so many more things. Things will start to change at such a rapid rate. You will have to make a lot of adjustments and changes in your life and what you do to keep up with the way the world is changing because it's going to be changing so fast. And part, part of what the singularity is or part of you know, the kind of foundational element is that we'll get to a point where if you don't augment yourself, you won't be able to keep up with the pace of change and you will become an extinct essentially creature by by remaining only with your biological body 
That is wild. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, I suggest all your audience check out the documentary. Uh, I mean, it's on iTunes and Netflix and it's actually not on Netflix, excuse me, because they don't, they don't pay royalties, but it's on Vimeo, whatever. Even though it's 10 years old, I I guarantee you it'll still blow your mind (laughs) and it'll put a lot of what's going on in the world today in terms of technology and sort of some historical perspective. And did did that documentary predict like the rise of an Elon Musk per se? And then we're seeing him talking about Neuralink actively today? Yeah, I mean, not particularly Elon Musk individually, but it, it basically what Ray did and is he was an inventor first and foremost, a very prolific inventor. He invented the flatbed scanner, optical recognition software, invented the first synthesizer to repro- uh, accurately reproduce real instrument sound. He's basically a pattern scientist, I guess. That's so cool. And like to think I've never really heard of his name. It's like, you know, like those are the people we should almost be hearing about. Yeah, once you learn about him, you'll see him all over. He was actually his most recent kind of main thing is uh, working in Google's AI, you know, heading up their AI department, building essentially the Google brain. Wow. So Ray was an inventor. And the reason what he was doing is he would kind of like Gretzky always says, you got to go where the puck's going to be. Well, as an inventor, he would say, you can't invent with the tools you have at your disposal today. You have to kind of invent with the tools, you know, will probably be available in the near term. So he spent a lot of time basically tracking technological advancement and changes with the intent of predicting what technology would be available for him in the near you know, term future to do invent with. And he started to see essentially that technology very specifically and continuously followed like Moore's law of exponential growth. And from there, he could start to model out, like, what would it be like in 2050, you know, because we're, we were kind of at the knee curve of this exponential growth in, like, the mid-late 90s. And so he wrote, he's written a series of books, like, uh, like many books, the, the, the main of which is called The Singularity is Near. And it sort of basically starts to talk about this interesting future time. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but check it out. It's cool. I will. I'll put the documentary info in the show notes as well so people can find that. But I, I imagine um, it, it's it's a heavy and a lot to, it's, it's a heavy topic or concept and a lot to take in. So it's good dinner table conversation too. Like watch it with, with your whoever, your family, and then you can sit around the table and try to figure out like, you know, what kind of cyborg you'll be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talk about a real first mover's advantage. It's going to be really interesting because if it's really not that far away, it's children today that are being born that are going to have to deal with it as they become young adults. So it's going to be a strange thing to watch for sure. Tell us a bit about yourself when you were a kid. What were you like at a younger age? What was I like at a younger age? Well, I was I'm, at a younger age. I kind of, there's I'm a little bit of a dichotomy. I think even at an older age, in that you know I was a fairly responsible kid, and you know I did pretty good in school. I did my homework. I got good grades. Like my mom didn't have to worry about me in that sense. But I also got into some trouble. <laughs> you know, I, I like to whoop it up. You You're know? curious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm like, you know, my neighborhood had a bunch of kids, but like, like kind of, I was like the youngest, say around eight years old and the oldest was about 13. So we had a good range, you know, and like the, the older kids probably got the younger kids a little bit of trouble, but you know, we like to wreak a little havoc. We were big break dancers back then in the mid eighties. We, you know, we'd go down to the train track and spray paint trains because we wanted to, you know, think like we were like the New York City breakers from Beat Street. And so we were definitely you like, you know, a little, little bit of like hooligans, but I also secretly did my homework, got good grades and, you know, what wasn't really going down like a bad path. And then honestly, I was very similar my whole life. You know, I was kind of did what I needed to do and pretty responsible. Yeah. But once I got my work done, I'd go basically cause trouble, you know, uh, figuratively speaking, like to party, have fun, just, you know, get out, be crazy. Yeah. You mentioned you were a BMX biker too. I was a skateboarder. So I was a little bit like always had that rebellious side where I wanted to be doing my own thing or breaking the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Skaters, you know, especially my era, uh, they were real, real dirtbags. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's a little cool. You're you're a little bit you know. There's a there's a better mix of like you know not all troublemakers in at the skate park. Now I'm going to the skate park again now with my son. Good, I'm. He's not skateboarding. He's he's into scootering. So I bought a scooter for myself, and we've been riding skate parks on our scooters. And I'm so I'm getting to survey the kind of kids that are at the skate park these days, and it's it's a little safer, I will say. Okay, well that's a good sign then. We're a bit rougher back then. Did did you learn any valuable money lessons at a young age? Oh yeah, Um, I you know I feel like at at my preteens era was my main lesson really. I mean my my parents split up when I was ten, and you know my my dad had a plumbing and heating business, so we we were fine. We had good decent money, I guess. But then my parents split up. Uh, it wasn't a great divorce, and we kind of just like were on our own. And what did your mom do, if you don't mind me asking? Just well, the problem the was, you know, my mom was born in '94-3, so like her growing up, ah. you pretty much your prospects were, you know, most likely just find a guy with money and get married and have kids. The classic, That's like, primarily what people encouraged you to do. Right, right. And if not that, you could basically be like one of three things: you could be a teacher, you could be a secretary, or you could be a nurse. So my mom didn't work, and that was part of the problem. Once once my parents got divorced, like you know, she had no earning potential uh, because she hadn't worked and she didn't finish college, and she got a job as a secretary, you know, but that didn't pay much. I mean, pays we're talking like low twenty thousand dollars a year, twenty two thousand dollars a year. So you know, what happened was is we were still living our kind of lifestyle. She wasn't good at money management. Um, I mean, she was a great mother, but just not a bit, not, not good money skills. No, and most people don't. And just burned through all our money. You know, like we didn't have a ton. So we had a paid for house and we had uh, some cash and she just like burned through all the cash taking care of us and kind of giving us essentially what we wanted and needed. Just putting everyone, putting obviously you guys before her, which is the motherly thing to do, but at the same time, (laughs) budgeting helps. Yeah, she wasn't really like kind of long-term thinking on it. And I started to get attuned to the fact that like money was this big stress pretty early on. And I would kind of check in with my mom about it. And then at some point I was like, so do we have any money left? I mean, because it just seems like we're always, you know, you're always like worried about it. And she's like, no, we don't have any money left. And I'm like, we don't have any money? (laughs) Like none? And why my mom got a paid for house in the divorce. So what ended up happening is, you know, she she wasn't making enough money. Credit cards started to pile up. She eventually mortgaged the house uh, to keep up with it. Spent all that, you know, and, and inevitably filed bankruptcy. Wow. Okay. So. I, you know, when learning this, I was about 12 or so, I was like, all right, well, you know, I, I got a job. I got my, actually, I got my first job when I was 13 as a bus boy, just working a day a week that year, like my, uh, my freshman year in high school. I got, I got the job in the summer before freshman year so. And um, then I just increased my hours, you know, so about every, every year. So by senior year of high school, I was working 25, 30 hours a week at the supermarket after after school, I'd work from four to ten, three nights a oh, week. Wow! So and, you took on the responsibility at quite a young age, though, to do that. Yeah, I mean, well, I just you know I just wanted to help my mother out, and so I mean, I wasn't making a ton of money, but I'd you know pay for my own stuff, I'd buy my own clothes. I had a car, so I paid for my my car, my car insurance, and gas. You know, it's not that my mom was still flipping the bill for you know all the overall living expenses, but it was you know still you know she was just losing money every month. That you know when you. I feel like a lot of people, you know, we talk about debt as though it's always like the fault of everyone. It's just a bunch of people that are just overspenders. But the problem is, is that most of the people in this country don't make enough money. So every month they can't afford their basic lifestyle, you know, and it's not a very high end lifestyle. I mean, they just can't afford the basic stuff. So every month, you know, they go in the hole another 500 bucks Mm -hmm. and that minus $500 gets put on a credit card, it gets put on a home equity line of credit or whatever. And unless you have a plan to increase your income so that you can overcome that, it's just a downward spiral into eventual bankruptcy or whatever. Yeah. And it's it's not because people, I don't think, are always these extravagant spenders. I think that a lot of people just don't make enough money, and number one. That's so true. Uh, and- we don't have a lot of wage growth in this country, even though like we got a lot of money in this country yeah especially the last two uh, decades the wage growth has yeah i mean it's just you know 
there isn't there the, the, the love isn't being spread around. No, uh, that's that's for sure. So that's kind of what I witnessed. It's like it, it you need a budget absolutely, and that's one of the hallmarks of what I kind of teach people right. is you need to know what is going on with your money so you can face the hard facts and say, hey, am I making enough to to do what I need to do in this life? Uh, and if not. How am I going to solve that problem? Because that's the fundamental problem. It's, you know, your, your earning potential. Yeah, it's so true. And if you don't ask yourself that question and kind of just delay that, that serious talk you, anyone should have with themselves, it just, it snowballs and gets worse. So absolutely. And so I saw that and I, you know, I kind of basically learned at a young age, that was a very long way to answer your question, Jordan, which is (laughs) one of my specialties. Uh, (laughs) I, I say this, uh, I learned that if you don't deal with your money, your money will definitely deal with you. That it's a scary true. thought. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. So I really just kind of commandeered it. And mm-hmm. truth be told, I was, I was always good at math. Uh, out of math and English, you know, I was more the math guy. I did better on the math SATs. I, I had a weird brain, math and art. So like at some point in college, like when I, after I got my first few credit cards and it very quickly, you know, I, I owed about five, 10 grand. I was like, I gotta, I gotta start paying attention to this and, and tracking this. And I was writing it all down in a book a little notebook and i was like this is this is really dumb um i'm like there has to be a computerized way to like track your finances you're ahead of your time yeah (laughs) yeah and even back then in like 1994 there was uh so i got quicken Mm. and um it was a really life-changing thing to get quicken uh because one you know i mean i I was pretty good at it because i'm good at math so it like you know i could figure it out but it, this is early computer days for me, so I was actually learning the computer, believe it or not, using Quicken, which is a cool thing. But what I learned with Quicken is I learned how to do bookkeeping, you know, and I, I say you have to do, you have to run your your life like a business. You run the business of you. And when you're tracking your finances, you're just doing the bookkeeping for the business of you. Right. Now, when you're- you own a business... It's completely expected that you would do bookkeeping because what business doesn't do bookkeeping? How would you know if the business is doing well? Yeah, how are you going to apply for a loan? How are you going to give them the the financials? How are you going to do anything if you don't do bookkeeping? Well, that's all true for your personal life too. Yeah. So I, I, I started doing the bookkeeping for the business of me and learning how to do bookkeeping, like that actual um, skill that I learned just with Quicken, I translated over to doing the bookkeeping for all my businesses. It's exactly the same thing. It's right. money in, money out. Make sure you take more money in than you have money going out. You know, it's obviously, so important. Yeah. it gets a little more complicated. You know, as you as you get into you know bigger organizations, and certainly if you get into any kind of publicly traded stuff or whatever but it's all based on the very basic you know fundamentals of income and expense you know and and double entry accounting so i learned that by learning quicken and then i just you know when i I did a business i was like oh i should use quickbooks you know so i switched over to that for my businesses but i still use quicken today for my personal life and my personal consulting corporation it tracks all my stocks and all those investment accounts. I track all my real estate in it. I do my invoicing out of it. I can basically run, you know, a legit business. And is it, sorry, Joe, is this for your business and your personal as well? It has like a personal section or? Yeah. So like th- this is the deal for me, like, and a lot of my clients, I have for me, for my personal life, because I'm an independent contractor, I have a corporation just for me that's only owned by me and it's my consulting corporation. Right. And so I manage the books for my consulting corporation and my personal checking account and my personal investments and all my real estate. I manage all that inside of Quicken Home and Business. It's a pretty amazing program. Okay. Um, And sadly, they don't have an affiliate program, so I can't even get a commission for pitching it. Right. (laughs) But I pitch it because I literally used it for over 20 years. Now, for businesses, you know, that like partners and like where you don't kind of have your business, you know, with my personal corp, there's a little, you know, crossover and it's kind of interlinked with my personal. But for my businesses that are just businesses, you know, and maybe have partners, I use QuickBooks to do that bookkeeping. I've heard that um, name before. That's that's yeah. a popular one. But QuickBooks doesn't have like uh, the ability to, to 
track all your investment accounts like very accurately in it. It doesn't have uh, the ability to manage your real estate in it. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's really meant for just, just business. Right. Um, but then I guess the good thing is that a lot of brokers have become extremely user-friendly. So, you know, whether your, th- your finances are in two or three places, it's still a lot more uh, easy to control, I guess, than in the past. It's better than nothing, yeah. but I I would say it's not good to have your finance. You need to have all your stuff in one place so you can see the big picture. I mean, what's what's the point of seeing a you know a partial picture you know at you know different parts of the month? Like have it all in one place. It's nice and easy and easily to organize. And, Makes sense. Yeah. And you can see what's going on at all times. And you know, it's it's luckily because you, for me and I I actually. This is something I, I think it's worth thinking about for people. Like, for me, I, I enjoy counting things because uh, <laughs> I like math and I'm a little OCD. So for me, it's kind of therapeutic to do my finances. I don't mind it. It's a hobby that I enjoy, right? Now, I don't enjoy the hobby of running, even though I should do that. And because <laughs> I don't enjoy running, I don't do it. So I'm failing in the health tracking department. That is for sure. So people need to realize that money, you know, there's some people out there, money is, is like, you know, just an enjoyable hobby for them. They like to read about it. They like to do their finances. If you're not that kind of person, you need to get over that and you need to just bite the bullet and do it for yourself or you're yeah. going to pay the price. Uh, or you could even pay someone to do it for you. And I contest that whatever you pay someone to do it for you, you will make back from understanding your finances and making improvements about the way you spend money, you will save more than you spend on them and then some. Especially uh, in the long run too. Big yeah. picture, it's it's so important to get out of the way early. And so what did you study at university? I was a double major. I was a pre-med <laughs> major and a photography major. <laughs> so pre-med would that would be like medicine and photography yeah I, I had I had an interest nice. from early on to be a psychiatrist it was kind of on on my uh, potential uh, career things I don't know why from a young kid I, I like psychotherapy I like thinking about human dynamics and stuff like that nice. so yeah. when I got my school actually didn't have a pre-med major if you wanted to go pre-med you would join the pre-med quote-unquote program and then you would major in something else and most people majored in you know organic chemistry or biology or whatever I mean I, I was like well I'm just going to manage a major in art because I that's the other thing I'm interested in and there's certain classes when you're in pre-med program you got to like take all the higher level classes through bio and chem and math and, and everything so there's just like a certain set of classes that were prereq minimums for med school so I took all those and I imagine that's when they start losing a lot of students just as they have to go. Yeah, so tears, but yeah. after I did all that, um, but then I just was like, I don't want to go to medical school. I did that just, you know, and probably I wouldn't have gotten in, to be honest. Uh, maybe I would, who knows. But um, but I was like, I, I just want to pursue the art thing. So I, uh, I just yeah. focused on just my photography major in the last two years, and I ended up with a degree in photography, which you could probably argue is useless. <laughs> Well, not, not if you're but, in media, I wouldn't say that at all. No, I, I amazingly made the most out of my degree. And I, so I, I really, I mean, the world needs art, like, especially the world of commerce. I mean, art oh, sells things yeah. much better than stuff that doesn't have art around it. So there is a place for design and, and whatnot. My school just, you know, it did, my school had this kind of prepared you for the idea that maybe you would go to New York and become like a, like an artist that has like showings and galleries and be like this social commentary right. critical artist. That's what they sort of laid out for you as a possible career. They didn't really train you to like use your art in a commercial sense. But, but what, that's also, I guess, what the image of an artist was back then, right? Now, before the internet kind of came along too? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I, I just think it was my school and a lot of East Coast schools do that. Now, be, it turned out I ended up in L.A. owning a company that hired artists. And uh, I, the schools in Los Angeles, they actually prepare their students to go out into the working world of art, whether it be visual effects artists, graphic designers, filmmakers, you know, with a focus on directing commercials or directing media that you can actually make a living off of, like in short order. And I, I felt like the gotcha. schools of the West Coast actually did their best to, to show students like, 
this is how you're going to make money doing this. And hopefully you'll get to make your movie one day too. Don't get me wrong. But until then, you're going to need to like pay your student loans and have, you know, have a living. And this is how you're going to do it. Yeah, it just sounds like a more practical approach to art as opposed to the old kind of find a gallery and do it the, the old way. But yeah, okay. I mean, the gallery thing is like the least possible chance of success. Especially <laughs> these days, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so that's what I finished my degree in. Um, okay, cool. And so basically, you finished school, I think, as well with, with quite a bit of debt. So obviously, you, you had a good understanding of money, but then you know, at what point did that out, outstanding student loan and consumer debt start to weigh on you again? Well, it was weighing on me like right away. I mean, right. and part of what made it weigh on me, like in school, like I, you know, I paid for my school with, I got grants and student loans, you know, I had pretty good grades. So I, I got about half my tuition paid for, and I ended up with about 30,000 student loans. And I think about 15 grand in credit card debt. Because I was paying for supplies and my computer and like my books and stuff on credit cards and my rent. But, you know, you're in school, you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm getting prepared here. I'm going to go out and get a job and I'll just wipe this stuff out, you know. And then I got out there and I realized, man, I don't make enough money to like <laughs> to pay for any of this. You know, like I'm losing money every month. You know, I'm I'm. I'm counting it and it's, it's an ugly picture it's like you mentioned before. Yeah. and I'm looking forward, you know, and I'm like, where, where can I, where am I going to be making enough money? Can I see that in my future right now where I'll actually be able to start making this debt go in reverse. And that, that was pretty far off. You know, that's the problem. Like we load up with these student loans. They Seriously. don't have enough financial education. And then they also don't get enough guidance on how they're going to make the money to pay these loans off. And then once you get out in the cruel world, you know, and you're like, you're getting paid 30 grand a year if you're lucky at your starting job and you need to be making 60 in order to like pay your rent, pay your bills, have a little bit of fun and pay your student loans. Yeah. And it's like, it's not a good scenario. So your debt just keeps going up and up and up. And so right away, I kind of realized that I didn't really see much prospect for me making all, enough money to even like cover my expenses for a while, uh, at least with the, the path that I was kind of on at the time. Uh, but, you know, part of that's just the way it is when you get out of school, you know, uh, you got to pay right. your dues and all that. But you do have to think seriously about like, what am I, what is my income potential going to be with whatever it is I'm studying? Yeah, and I mean, a plan certainly goes a long way. And although the more you can make, the sooner you might break even. If you do carry a lot of debt, it's just it's easier said than done. It is. But what sparked your curiosity to go down to LA after after finishing school? Well, I went to New York. Uh, my plan was originally just to go to New York and try to be a photographer. Uh, you know, and there's kind of a route for that. I mean, there's commercial photography. I, I came to learn, which is the way you make a living initially. Um, Okay, commercial. So that would be uh, like buildings um, and catalogs, you know, products, right. you know, all the stuff you see in magazines, billboards, that's all commercial photography. And those, and those photographers make a lot of money. And like for, for commercials, the moving version of that, this, the, the job is the, the, the film director, you know, uh, and they also make okay. a lot of money, but it's a very hard job to get. And so... I was going to go do that and just kind of go the route, which is become a photographer's assistant and kind of work my way up and see what happened. And it so happened a family friend was like, hey, uh, another family friend of ours owns some kind of graphics company in New York City. I don't know what they do, but I know it's some kind of graphics. I could make it an email intro or, or I, probably not even an email intro. I could give you their number, you know, if you want to try to reach out and maybe get a interview and i was like of course yeah man i'm I'll, whatever whatever i can go seek out so i called them and uh, i basically harassed this human being with inundated this person <laughs> with calls like twice a week for like three months and That's um, persistence, brother. yeah i was very persistent guy and uh finally got in there and i walk in this place and it was a post-production company and i had no idea what post-production was exactly uh but i walk in and like post-production companies are designed like very beautiful spaces like part of what you're selling is your whole it's your art you know your work but your space is a reflection of the quality of your company so it's like well designed it's got beautiful furniture like it's not a regular workplace you know any right and i walk in there and i'm like whoa what is this place this is awesome i want to work here this looks so 
nice. It looks, you know, I was like, I didn't know what to expect. And so I had a little informational interview and um, the guy was like, keep in touch. And I literally faxed this dude my resume for like the next three months, like once a week. <laughs> um, and then finally I got a call from the guy in the shipping and receiving department. And he's like, Dominic says you keep sending him your resume. <laughs> Told me to call you. We have a job opening. Can you come down here? And this was all happening when my last semester of college. So I was actually still in college. It was about May of 1997. And he doesn't know I'm in Massachusetts. But I'm like, he's like, can you be here tomorrow morning at like 9 a.m. for an interview? And I'm wow. like, yes. And so I left my house at like 3 in the morning, <laughs> drove to New York Wild. City, and Got this interview and uh, got the job in the shipping and receiving room, which is the classic entry-level job for post-production, the quintessential thing, the mailroom job, quote-unquote. And um, I wasn't making enough money, so I, couldn't, I didn't stay there. I stayed there for a year, but I learned all about post-production and started to understand what it all was and put the big picture together because I didn't really learn much filmmaking. I wasn't learning filmmaking in um you know, my program at school, I was doing still stuff and digital imaging. And so I was like, I fell in love with it. I was like, this is awesome. I, I, I also always wanted to own a business. There was three things I wanted to do, uh, or, or I guess two, you might say, is in my career. I wanted to own a business mm -hmm. and, I want, and I wanted to buy a house as soon as I possibly could. I just saw those things as like the right things to do in life. And the business thing probably is because my dad owned a business and like, you know, I saw that as that's a good living, you know, like you're in control. And the fact that he owned a business made it made owning a business not seem like something that was unachievable. You know what I mean? I, I, right. You had that firsthand experience. As yeah. Well, and right? I think that's, you know, you got to be careful what your parents teach you without you realizing it. And when if your parents only yeah. have regular jobs, you know, that's what you see as the normal thing. But if your parents own a business, you're like, oh, well, maybe I'll own a business, you know? It's exactly with me, though. My parents were two public servants. So my idea was like, just, you know, become a teacher or something like that. Exactly. It's true. Yeah. I mean, you just kind of, you know, you just learn, you learn by watching and you just sort of adopt these, these theories subconsciously. Um, and so I saw post-production as like, this is the kind of business I could own too. It's like achievable. It's, it's like, it's not very, it's not a huge business. You know what I mean? It's like at that company at the time had about 50, 60 people, you know, it's like something I felt like a commandeer at some point, Good. but anyway, it was 10 years until that happened but um so it takes time <laughs> patience but yeah so what, what ended up happening to answer your question again long story long i start going to new york and i am commuting i'm taking the train in and out of long island uh originally i lived in queens and i moved out to long island and i'm taking the train like an hour and a half each way okay into new yeah, york yeah. city um yeah. and then getting on the subway then walking 15 blocks i mean serious commute <laughs> and this, I would every day I'd just be like, I'd be looking around, I'd be sitting on this, this train and watching these dudes come out of like the financial district or whatever, and they got their suit and their ties pulled down and they got their brown bag beer, you know, like, and they're just <laughs> staring off into space blankly, you know, like they just look busted. Uh, and, you know, they're older, I mean, you know, yeah. than me. Obviously, they're probably in their 40s and they just look tired and like not having a good time. And I would just watch. Every day I'd be on this train thinking this sucks, number one, this, this commuting. But I'm like looking at these guys and I'm like, what sucks worse is I'm going to be that guy in like 20 years. Like, I don't really see that how that doesn't happen here. I mean, I'm seeing my future and it's not looking good. You know, it's not looking yeah. very fun. So, realization. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, you know what? F this. <laughs> Even though I can't afford it and I'm, I'm up to my eyeballs and dead anyway, I'm going on a road trip. I got to get out of here, shake things up. And so my girlfriend and I quit our jobs. We went on a road trip. I mean, this is totally, I shouldn't be recommending this uh, because I was already in debt and I was put this whole thing on a credit card. So by the end of this, it was another five grand. But I was like, whatever, there's not debtor's prison anymore. I guess I could just, you know, if all goes to hell, what am I all planning? No, and the context, right? It was different times. Yeah. I mean, you're lucky. You took a risk, so, but um, you got away with it. So we go on this road trip and our intention was to go back to New York, but uh, two months in, we're up in Vancouver. Oh, beautiful. Up yeah, which was awesome. And it's time to turn around. And we had gone through LA and I, and I liked LA. And I said to my girlfriend, I don't want to go back to New York, man. It's just too stuffy there. Like it's, you're living in filing cabinets. It's just, 
concrete jungle. It was fun, but yeah, it smells. I'm over it. <laughs> and um, I'm like, can we just move to Los Angeles? Like, it looks so great there. <laughs> like, there's, yeah. there's like blue. You can see the sky. There's the beaches there. You got the mountains. You got the desert. You got all this cool stuff. I mean, and it's a better place for my career. Yeah. And uh, my girlfriend, who, who fr- frankly was not a spontaneous person, she said yes, because I guess she was starting in New York too. So we just drove back down to LA and stayed in a hotel for two weeks uh, and managed to get an apartment. And we just started started our lives anew in Los Angeles. And I started pounding the pavement looking for jobs and, and post-production. And is that how um, you found Brass Knuckles edit- uh, editorial? Yeah. Like actually... Uh, Brass Knuckles happened to be near where I lived, and I was just walking. Literally, this is a time much before email like was even still so readily used. I, I actually had a, a stack of resumes in, in my bag, and I, would, I was just walking around town and going into post-production and production companies and asking the receptionist if I could hand, my, ha- hand over my resume and if there's anyone I could talk to about any jobs. And this is like door-to-door sales I was doing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> how it was though right back oh, then you actually had to use your legs and go there and show up still all doing door-to-door sales it's just over the phone or over email or over yeah. whatever now. But, and i happen to go put my resume in a brass knuckles now i never heard anything from them but ironically i ended up getting a job and we ended up going over to brass knuckles to do some work and use their services oh, okay and so we were going over there for about a couple months and I got to know the owner a little bit because it's a small company. It was like, you know, 15 people at the time. And um, before the end of it, like our, our job was kind of wrapping up over there. And I said to him, hey, you know, I'm looking for a new gig because I was kind of not digging the, the thing. I, I needed to get to a new place to grow. And I was like, if you ever need any help, let me know. And he's like, you know, we might be hiring. And, uh, and so we wrapped about that. And like, I was like, it was it was not the executive producer job, it was the producer job or the kind of project manager under the executive producer. The executive producer essentially runs the shop, you know, in post-production. And uh, so it was a producer job. And so he hired me and uh, that was awesome. And I was super psyched because I could walk there. I was living in Venice, California. I mean, despite the fact that I had a pile of debt, life was good right. uh, like at it. that moment. Um, and I was like, finally, this was a job. It was a full-time job and it was paying enough where with overtime, like I could start, I started to finally re- reverse my dad. My dad had gone up about $70,000 and it was literally at the breaking point where I was paying credit cards payments with credit cards, but I was out of credit and it was all going to start crashing down on me. And, um, it was like literally just in time, I guess, you know, I got lucky the stars aligned, but. What changed it was that I started to make more money. I mean, that is that is the hard truth yeah. that everybody, you know, they want some other answer. Now, doing the budget and tracking your money makes sure that you make the most out of all the money you make. And right. that's true for when you're making just enough and also when you're making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because the more you waste, the more work you tack on to the rest of your that's life. Good point. So... You want to be as prudent with your money when you're making nothing as you are, uh, you know, when you're making a lot. Because when you're making a lot, you actually have the ability to save a lot, you know, and put that money to work so that you might retire hopefully sooner or, or even then, you know, be able to retire. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, and I like that you bring that up, though, because it is so important to to just try and add new sources of income, especially in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, and at the time, like there, you weren't. There was no blogs. There was no people making money, like kind of online in the way they are now. All these side hustles. There was no Uber, whatever. You know, there, it was a little harder to make have a side job. But yeah. I would do side jobs doing graphic design for like catalogs and record labels and things like that. That was my side gig. I had a, you know, my computer at home, and I would do I would do some side work doing. Um, freelance design so i actually did have a little side gig which was good oh, there you go yeah 
And uh, yeah, so anyway, I started that job and um, this was a really important part of my life and a really important thing about like what I think about life. When I, when I say, you know, you have to treat your life like the business of you and do your bookkeeping and all that and, and try to understand how you're going to make more money and, you know, basically, in, you know, just like any business, every, every business is trying to make more money and they want to get new clients, they want to grow, they want to make, you know, be efficient with their spending so they have more profit. You have to do all this with your own life. Yeah. And if you want to be successful, I really believe that. And so if you would just have a, you know, a kind of regular job, there is a way to do this at your job. You know, like you take on projects that are not assigned to you. You go out of your way to sh- to shine as an employee and to like improve your workplace even though you're not asked. Yeah. You you make yourself so indispensable that when you go and sit down and ask for your raise, they do not want to lose you, so they give you more money, and they give yeah. you the kind of money that you really want. Like you, Imagine. you have you have to put your employer in that position to be scared of losing you because you do such a good job. And when you own a business and you have clients, and you can actually get sued for doing a bad job, this is very common. You know, you put your best foot forward. You're like, I have a client here. I have to take care of a fiduciary responsibility. But for some reason. When you're an employee, it's like, well, I do what I'm told, you know what I mean? And like, it's like, I don't know. It's like a lot of people just don't have this mentality that you should treat your employer like you're one client. You're the product and they're your one client. And you want to make sure they keep hiring you and you want to make sure they give you more projects and pay you more. Yeah, it's Uh, not a great mentality though, but it's easy to just get stuck in that because as long as your paycheck comes in every two months... You know, yeah, done. you get used to it. All of a sudden, you think uh, I deserve this money, and then all of a sudden, you're like, I'm not getting paid enough. I'm not getting paid what I deserve, and you get a bad attitude. and And it's like that's not how you should be. You need to be a business person. You need to be business minded. Um, and so, initiative. Because- I learned that lesson at Brass Knuckles because I started working there, and I very quickly realized that there was no one liked the owners. The owners were kind of checked out. Like it was a, there was a leadership void. Um, the the EP at the time was not doing a good job and everyone hated working there and everyone had a shitty excuse me a a bad attitude and it made it hard for me to do my job right and so i was like you know what man someone needs to do something about this this place is a cool place it's got a lot of potential but it's just a bunch of people that like aren't enjoying working here and what I learned is because they they had no captain, like they had nobody that they thought was looking out for them and like worried about them. So their attitude was like, well, I'm not going to worry about you. I'm not going to worry about the company. And um, so I, I just did everything I could. I, I would literally clean out closets that had 10 inches of dust piled on a bunch of crap that had been there for 15 years, you know. There was wires all over the place, this post-production company. Like I t- you know, started tidying all that up. There was broken equipment that I got repaired. There was broken employees, actually, I learned that were beyond repair. We got rid of them and replaced them with better people. That like, you know, all these things over the course of a year changed everything. Imp- changed the whole company. Like it, it like people were liking working there. You know, people felt like they had career prospects there. Even the owners decided to like invest in new gear and stuff, you know, like in it was like there was stuff happening, like there was some energy. And lo and behold, the executive producer a year in basically left and they offered me the job to be the EP because I was being the Amazing. EP anyway. So Well, you stepped in to be that leader that everyone needed and clearly they noticed. Yes, yeah. I did. And like that made all the difference in my life and like my career. It also gave me the confidence that I could actually run a company because I, I decided to do it. I decided to run this company. It was a great opportunity for me, even though it was it was tough. I mean, the sad part is, you know, I, I, it did make this great opportunity out of this. And in the end, I left with, you know, my friends and some of the other employees to start my own company. And that was that was a tough transition and something, right. you know, I felt bad about, but it just was was what it was. That's true. Yeah, it happens. So employers have to be careful, too. When you have really great employees, you better take care of them because they might actually pull the rug out from under you. Yeah, you make a great point. It's a lot more of a give and take relationship. So if you're a good employee, you're indispensable, but you've also got to pay attention to make sure the bosses are doing what they're supposed to. Now, as you've transitioned over this period of time from running companies to being the boss of your life with uh, with your consulting companies, the Digital Nomad, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned over that time period? Okay, so let's see, lessons. Well, 
this this lesson of learning uh, that that I explained about brass knuckles and and taking advantage of opportunities and is a huge lesson. It's it's called that's the business view. That's being business minded. Inevitably, uh, I saw the opportunity to start yeah. my own business. And starting your own business is really you know to me if you can do it, it's it's a really great thing to do because. You control so much of your life when you own your own business. Like you can control the way the business works. You can tr- control um, how much you make to a degree. I mean, you you have to have the business has to be successful for you to be able to control that. But um, and then you are like the real beneficiary of all your hard work. So there's just a lot of pride in it. Um, you put a lot a lot of hours in though, and you take on a lot more responsibility right. than you know being an, a kind of an employee somewhere. Um, but and then also the other great thing about owning a business is you get preferential tax treatment as a business owner in this country and you ultimately have the you know potential to pay far less taxes than your average employee does who's on a w2 paycheck right so can you provide some examples of that yeah well i mean the exam that is it's just the truth so and right. the way it works is is like essentially and Robert but as a corporation, Kaisak, right? Like you pay yourself first, then taxes are paid afterwards. Whereas, yeah, like your W two employee, the way it works is you get paid, you pay taxes on that money, and then you get the remainder to spend on your quote unquote expenses. But as a business owner, you get paid, you get to pay your expenses, right, and deduct that off your income, and then pay tax on the remainder. It's just, and it's, you basically just get the ability to have a big tax deduction. Now with owning, you know, with a regular business at large, um, you know, that's a tax benefit for the business. But if you are an independent contractor um, or a freelancer or do side gigs, if you incorporate yourself, I mean, truth be told, if, if you make any money as, as a side gig as a, and you get a 1099, you do get the benefits of business deductions. But if you incorporate yourself in a certain way, um, you can even further improve the tax percentage that you pay, particularly if you set yourself up as an S-corp. So Hmm. I always encourage people, one, you know, look at trying to be a business owner if you can. It's not always easy in every career, like, uh, because, you know, some careers are very big industries and you can't just, it's not easy just to start a business. But if, if that's the case, if you can do some side work, if you can do some freelancing where you can basically have a corporation and get income to your corporation, you will be able to expense a lot of things like in your life. Like you will get a home office deduction because your corporation has run out of your house. So you'll get some of your utilities uh, deducted. You'll get some of your rent or your mortgage or whatever deducted. If you use your car for the benefit of your business, you'll be able to deduct some of your car. All of a sudden you have uh, all these business expenses that basically you know come off the top of your income and you're paying tax in the remainder versus just paying tax on it all. So if you can if you can right. figure out a way to at least have a side business, well one you'll be making more money which is which is important for uh, amassing your wealth so you can eventually hopefully retire, but two you will get some preferential tax treatment as a business owner in the country. That that's awesome that you've been able to use these skills you've developed over time to to monetize them and just just again help the logistics of of your life so you could live it to the best. So I'm trying, my man. I'm trying. <laughs> That's great. So a few more though, I just sure. gotta ask, what was the uh, the Emmy award winning series, the HBO one you made? Oh, it was yeah. about the Foo Fighters. Uh, it was called what Sonic was Highways like? and it was right. uh, it was an eight episode docuseries uh, that was uh, uh, made with the Foo Fighters. Dave Grohl directed it and uh, it was a series about the making of their 20th anniversary album, which is also called Sonic Highways. And it's a really great series. It, each episode covers like the musical history of a different city. And Dave writes the songs. He interviews all these like great music greats and like legends and stuff in each city. We learn about the kind of music from that city, the musical history. Wow. And then he wrote songs based on his inspiration from talking to all these people. And it's all integrated into each episode. Cool. It came out in 2000, uh, well, December of 2014. And it was a very popular show. I just love making it. It was definitely like one of the pinnacles of, of our career. And it, it came about because that, that Transcendiment documentary I mentioned uh, to you 
Well, I don't know if you recall, I said that uh, one of Ray's inventions was uh, the synthesizers that the actor that reproduced real instrument sounds called Kurzweil keyboards. Oh, um, wow. Well, incredible. The, the Kurzweil keyboard is like the musician's keyboard. It's like every musician, young musician, wanted a Kurzweil keyboard. You know, it's just one of those like cool, cool keyboards. And so Dave was familiar with Kurzweil keyboards and Ray, and as many musicians are. And then when he was talking to a friend of his about wanting to make this, this other documentary called Sound City, which we made with him first, our friend was like, hey, you should check out my buddies. They just produced this documentary, Transcendent Man, about Ray Kurzweil. And he's like, oh, no way. I've seen that. I like that. And that wow, sparked cool. a conversation. And, uh, and then we ended up uh, teaming up with him and co-produced this documentary called Sound City, which was about a famous recording studio in Los Angeles called Sound City. That documentary did well in right. Sundance. Dave directed that. We did all the post-production and editing and everything. And then uh, from there, the Sonic Highways series uh, came into being. And it was just, it was awesome. It was definitely like a highlight of our career for sure. That's so cool, right? But it just goes to show the initiative you take in one thing. We've, you know, we, you've touched base on this the whole episode. It can lead to other opportunities that you never would have thought. So it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I really think, you know, another key that, to life I've learned is you really do have to have multiple irons in the fire. You cannot rely on one potential avenue from beginning of your life to the end. It's like you got to do side things. You got to mm -hmm. do extra jobs. You got to like, you know, obviously be always be networking. You got to be looking for other opportunities. You got to say to yourself, what is my skill set? And like, what can I apply it to other than the thing that I'm currently doing, you know, and try to create, yeah. you know, I guess you would say multiple streams of income, which is kind of a, a becoming a more common uh, thing to hear today. If you kind of spend time in the financial blogosphere. Yeah. Um, but that was really key to us. We would always be trying new things. Yeah, that's um, how you grow, yeah. And real estate is another one of those things. I've done a lot of real estate, uh, <clears throat> and it's been uh, part of the reason we've amassed the, the money we have. Right. And yeah. that has been like another side project that you know, I've ended up doing a lot of and has produced good results. Yeah, I do apologize, Joe. We won't be able to get into the real estate today, and I know that is one of your no core problem, But um, So just for the last question, if you wouldn't mind thinking back, what would be three of the biggest investments you've made in yourself that helped get you to this point? The three biggest investments I made in myself? Well, I would say, um, one, uh, deciding to commandeer my finances using Quicken, which is a very small investment of about probably $60. <laughs> uh such a good return such on investment. Such a good return on investment. Yeah. Uh, two, buying my first house. Um, buying my first house paid off like in just epic dividends. Um, the whole fact that there is a conversation around whether or not you should own your house to me is the dumbest conversation on the planet. And I've actually done the math on it. And it's very compelling mm. math that you should own your residence. Uh, it is an asset in my opinion, as much, you know, regardless of what Robert Kiyosaki says, I mean, he's got more money than me and he's more successful than I am. So, you know, I can't argue with that, but owning my house has paid off for me very handsomely, all of the houses I've owned. Um, and then beyond that, um, taking the leap and starting a business, you know, it was scary. It, it was tough to do. It took some planning, but like, you know, majorly changed my life and for the better. And, and, um, you know, it's tough as it, as it is, I, I, I recommend it. Uh, so I do also it. recommend you start thinking about doing it earlier in life before you have kids and lots to lose, but right. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it makes sense. And I mean, just thank you, Joe, for doing what you've done and putting all of your knowledge online because you serve as an inspiration to people like myself, someone that's trying to figure out how they can do exactly that and take the leap. So it's, Oh, thanks, thanks man. No, no you're problem. I'm trying. I'm glad, I'm glad you're getting some benefit out of it. Yeah, no, most definitely, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. So where can people find more about you? Uh, my website, playladder.com. Uh, basically all of my thoughts, uh, nearly all of my thoughts at this point, you know, are there for free lessons. I have both, you know, blog posts, but also some free courses I'm starting to do a couple paid courses. One of my, 
new paid course is about incorporating yourself and uh, all all the details involved in doing that if you're like a freelancer or an independent contractor mm-hmm. uh, and how you can save money on taxes and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, by and large, everything I've put to work for myself over the years and also now put to work for people that pay me for consulting to do uh, manage their business finances is all on my website. So uh, that is the place to go. Good, man. Well, I'll, I'll put that all in the show notes so people can find you. But I agree. I, I think, you know, I'm 27. I'm young. But I, I think it's as much as it might be more difficult to, to take that leap and do all this, it's so worth it. Would you agree? Absolutely, man. No, you know, you, you got to be in it to win it. Yeah, it's so true. So any, any last piece <laughs> of advice before we let you go? Last piece of advice. Well, as I like to say, if you want to be successful in life, you have to be financially prudent, business-minded, and investment-focused. That is the trifecta to success. I like that. Good way to end that off. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Joe. No problem, man. Thank you for having me. And that is it for episode 55. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. You can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and at anchor.fm slash highly invested. I hope you got some value out of that episode and just goes to show that sometimes you've got to take risks, but if you trust your gut, they can pay off. And it's always good to be able to learn new skills and reinvent yourself, especially in this day and age. But uh, please share this with any friends or like-minded individuals that you think will get some value out of it as well. Just want to help spread the knowledge. And if you could leave a review or rating, that would help me out a lot. I would appreciate it. And it's always nice to know who's listening. So this is your host, Jordan Hiley, signing off. Stay highly invested in yourselves, everyone. Till next time.